Lord, we just thank you that you are with us always. Lord, thank you for the things you're showing us out of this letter to the Hebrews and the reality of your desire to show us the eagerness you have to be with us, that you would set up a high priest that would never die, who has taken away our sin for all time, and that you would set that high priest up with an oath that we might have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge into you, you so want us to have strong encouragement and have no fear. For as Hebrews says, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, that those who had fear of death, the fear of death, all their lives might be set free. He came to destroy the works of Satan by taking away the sin of the world. And now those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation and there's no fear of death. Lord, thank you for this awesome reality. Thank you for an open heaven. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that heaven has come within us. We could not go to heaven, but heaven came to us. The good news of the kingdom of heaven. Now within reach of all who would believe. For the kingdom of heaven shall be within you, Jesus said, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. A parallel universe, another reality. God's home, God's place. We live and move and have our being in a new reality as sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, thank you so much for this reality. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at some thoughts in Hebrews. What some people might say are difficult passages. Let's let's take a look at this and verse by verse. I want to share some thoughts about this that I think will be really encouraging. Hebrews chapter 6. Actually, let's back up chapter 5 a little bit. You guys enjoying the series on Hebrews? Awesome. I just feel like this is like such a powerful, powerful book to open our eyes to this new priesthood. And when, you, when I say new priesthood, the first thought that comes to my mind is a priesthood that God has ordained that is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which merely covered sin and could not take it away. This priesthood takes away sin once for all time. So the Melchizedek priesthood, which was the priesthood God ordained even before Levi, which he showed in when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi being in the loins of Abraham, the scripture says, actually paid tithes to another priesthood, symbolizing a superior priesthood. Because if Levi is paying tithes to another priesthood, the whole point there in the scripture is to show that there, a new priesthood is coming that would be superior to the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. It's awesome. 
And the reason why Melchizedek came with bread and wine to Abraham in that meeting with bread and wine, because he was foreshadowing the work of that priest, the one Christ Jesus who would give his life for us to remove all sin from us as far as the east is from the west for once, once for all time. So he came with bread and wine symbolizing the finished work that would soon take place as when the Christ came. And now we take bread and wine as members of the Melchizedek priesthood. It's, it's awesome. It's all, it's all painted there for us to show this new priesthood. So, and God set this up with an oath because he wanted us to be completely convinced that he's not counting our sin against us anymore. He set it up with an oath. And that's why he quoted Jeremiah in Hebrews saying, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. I love that phrase, not like the one I made when I brought them out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments are obsolete. The Ten Commandments are obsolete. The sacrificial system is obsolete. The temple is obsolete. The priesthood is obsolete. All, of, all that which is of earth is obsolete. All that which is of this creation is obsolete. The, the letters engraved on stone, Paul says, are letters of death and condemnation. They are obsolete. doesn't mean that what they taught is obsolete, for love fulfills everything the law said. Love fulfills those laws that said don't do this and don't do that and don't do that. So it's not like the, the love is not obsolete, but the law is obsolete, the scripture says. The covenant of law is obsolete. When Jesus said, I come, he said, think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. What he meant by that was, I've not come to lower the standard. I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets and say, okay, it's okay to steal, but it's, we're going to keep, we're going to keep adultery. You know, we're going to keep, you cannot keep, commit adultery. We're going to keep that one. But, you know, false witness, that's not that bad. We're going to take that one off. We're going to, we're going to destroy the law by lowering the standard. He, did, he says, I think not I've come to destroy the law. I've not come to lower the standard so you can make it and get in with your own righteousness. No, I've not come to destroy the law. I've not come to lower the standard. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. And once it's fulfilled, they who believe on me will receive the righteousness that I've obtained for them as a man on earth. Under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians says, as a man on earth, I'll obtain a righteousness which is now can be given to another man by this substitution because he is the son of God and the son of man. So he didn't come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill it. And now in this awesome new priesthood, we can rest. And every time we stumble and fall and find ourselves sinning as believers, you are sinning under grace. When you sin under law, you are a transgressor. Because we're, we're, if you are under law and you sin, you, you have committed a transgression. Paul says, but if you're not under law, there is no transgression. Paul says in Galatians that if I find myself sinning, does that mean Christ is the minister of sin? He says, God forbid. That's just my flesh. That's not Christ in me sinning. But I do not go back under the law and make myself a transgressor. You see it? If I am sinning as a believer under grace, I don't go back into the law and make myself a transgressor in my thinking because God says, don't do that. This is a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. In this covenant, I'll be merciful to all their iniquities and I'll remember or keep a record of your sins no more. Why? Because of the value he places on the death of his son. 
It is the blood of the Lamb that overcomes all things, Galatians says. When the beast comes after you, when the voice of the beast, the spirit of the beast, when Satan himself comes after you, the scripture says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their lives even unto the death. And what is the word of their testimony? The word of their testimony is this. This Christ, well, first let me say this. There is something the scripture calls the testimony of the Lord born at the proper time. The testimony of the Lord born at the proper time, Paul writes to Timothy. The testimony of the Lord born or manifested or revealed at the proper time was this, that God would come in the human flesh. God would become a man and he would offer himself for the sins of the world. And in that death, he would plunge all humanity into death and judgment. As Jesus said, going to the cross, now is the judgment of this world. Now at the cross is the judgment of the world. Men saw a man on a tree, but God saw the judgment of the entire world, not even in that time only, but in all times, all generations. From the foundation of the world, he was crucified. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Otherwise, he, have to, he would have to be crucified often, the scripture says. It has to be that way. It has to be one who is in heaven yet in on earth, who offered himself up by the eternal spirit so that it transcends time. It transcends time. He could taste death for every man from the beginning of Adam to the end, even those not yet born like like you and I. Awesome. And God saw the judgment of the world. And so when Christ died, he plunged the whole human race into judgment, much like Noah's ark, which is a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. Noah's ark is a picture of God blotting out all flesh, but there being a wooden boat, a picture of the Christ after the flesh, a, a man, wood, a picture of us c- carrying us through judgment to another world, a cleansed world, a new world, with a rainbow of promise of no more judgment, and the rainbow being a picture of the ascended Christ, the, the one who sits on the throne because the rainbow comes from the throne of God. It's awesome. And before there was a Jew, before there was a Gentile, there's Noah, whose name means rest. Noah means rest. And God says, come into my rest. Believe what I've done. I will take you through judgment. And on the other side, the door that you entered into in the ark is the Christ. And the door you entered out of into the new land is the Christ. It's all Christ. Everything is him. The boat is him. The the door is him. The one window in the ark is him. One, One vision. Christ, Christ only. And he brought us to another world, another land it's a new world all pictures of what god was going to do in christ isn't that awesome this is what hebrews is trying to tell us this is an amazing thing a priesthood you can be bold when you sin under grace and come boldly to a throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need it is the only thing that can destroy the voice of the beast it's the only thing that can silence the voice of this of the satanic power that would condemn you, that would accuse you, that would hinder you and hold you back from your father, from your papa, who says, come boldly to my throne of grace, and there you will find my help and my mercy in time of need. Because you are his son, you are his daughter, because he has made it so. It's awesome. So this, when we say a new priesthood, it's everything. It's everything. You have a priest who can never die. You have a priest who can never die. In the old days, they had a, a law, part of the law. There was a rule in the law that said if you committed murder, there was no sacrifice for murder. But God had pro- provided a provision for murder. There were three cities called cities of refuge. And if you had committed murder, 
you could run to that city and live there until the high priest died, and then you could return home. What's God teaching? Christ is our city of refuge. We have a refuge, and he will never die. That's why he says, those who flee for refuge in me, no matter what our sin is, God's painting the picture of how he is our refuge because there was no sacrifice for murder. Christ's sacrifice takes care of everything. There is no, there is no sin that cannot be pardoned but one, only one. Jesus talked about the unpardonable sin. There's only one. And it's really simple to understand it. Jesus died for all sin, for all people, for all time. There, is, there remains no other sacrifice for sin but his. The only sin for which there is no forgiveness, Jesus said, in this life or in the life to come, is a rejection of the one who took away all the sin. And it makes sense. It's very logical. The only sin that is, unpard- that is unpardonable is to reject him who took away your sin. Because there remains no other sacrifice for sin. There, there's no other way. So to reject God's way, to reject God's son, there is no forgiveness for. And that's why it's such a serious thing to, to trample underfoot the blood of the son of God as we talked about last Sunday. Some of the Jewish people were clinging to Moses and sacrifices of animals and goats and not seeing what God had done in Christ, not seeing the scriptures about a new priesthood that would come after the order of Melchizedek. So that's why Paul pleads with people, be reconciled to God. I plead with you, he says, Christ in me pleads. For God was in Christ reconciling the whole world into himself, not counting their sins against them anymore. He's already done it. God sees the entire world as cleansed. God sees the entire world as forgiven. That's what he had to teach Peter. We talked about that a couple of years ago, how the vision Peter had of the unclean animals coming down in a sheet, a white sheet in four corners, speaking of the world. And Peter says, I can't eat those unclean animals. I'm a Jew. And, And God spoke, what God has cleansed, no longer call unholy. Three times God spoke to Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer call unholy. Our perspective should be God's perspective. God sees every person already forgiven. Every person. They need only receive it. Now, if they don't receive it, they'll die in their sins. If they don't believe on this one, they will die in their sins and they will face the judgment for their sins, as Jesus said. But God sees them as already forgiven. It has to be that way because all they have to do is believe it, which means it has to have already been done. If all, if all that is left to be done is to believe something, then it has to already be done. You see that? If all you have to do is believe that God has done it, then it has to have already been done. He's already done it. He sat down on the right hand. So God cleansed everybody just like he told Peter. He says, don't call another man ever again unholy or unclean because I've cleansed them. They just need to know it. They just need to receive it. And that changes your attitude toward everybody. That's why Jesus was so un- misunderstood and, and the Pharisees did, didn't get it because the Pharisees saw people as unclean and we're clean, unrighteous and we're righteous. And so 
they would separate themselves in a, in a self-righteous way from people, whereas Jesus saw everybody cleansed because he knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do. And so people were drawn to him because they felt accepted. They didn't, felt, they didn't feel rejected by him. And, and, he, and he, could, he could accept the sinner. He could eat with the sinner. He could do that because in his eyes, he saw God's righteousness being given to them. Why would he not eat with God? Why would he not eat with the one who is perfect? And that's how he saw them. That's why the woman who washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair Pharisees said, if you were a prophet, you would know what kind of woman this is. But Jesus saw her cleansed through what he would do. He saw her getting it. She understood what was coming, the mercy that she felt from him. And he asked that question, you know, tell me this. Who would love more, he who has forgiven much or forgiven little? And the Pharisees, well, I suppose he who has forgiven much. He goes, Well said, this woman has not ceased to wipe my feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. I came in and you gave me no water for my feet. Her sins, though they be many, are forgiven. She loves much. She has been given forgiven much. Isn't that awesome? It changes the way you look at humanity. It changes the way you look at people. And even better, it changes how you look at yourself. When you exercise this grace toward other people, this reality toward other people, then when you stumble, you can better receive it for yourself. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mystery, but if you let God's mercy flow from you to others, then when you stumble, it'll be easier for you to receive it for yourself. If you judge other people in your thinking or condemn other people, then when you stumble, you'll be hard on yourself. You can't get away from it. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of showing mercy and receiving mercy. Showing mercy, receiving mercy. And so sometimes we struggle with condemnation only because we're a little judgmental about other people. Because what we're doing to other people, we're doing to ourselves. God says, release other people that you might also receive freely the, the mercy that is yours. And then you become this conduit, this, this branch on a vine of flowing life, that giving mercy, receiving mercy, giving mercy, receiving mercy. The scripture says, we did not first love him, he first loved us. You cannot give what you don't have. And so we have to realize that he first loved me. One of the things about spiritual life that is, seems backwards, but you actually have to take care of yourself first. You know how, in the, you, you know how you're like in an air. air airplane and and the stewardess is up there you know the air or the airline attendant is the right word now um and they're doing the uh seat belts and stuff and they go you know this is the air oxygen comes down you know you know be sure and put this on yourself first and then help your children because if you if you go unconscious you're not gonna be able to help your children well that's that's the point next time you see that on an airline you're gonna think about this because what it means is that you've got to take care of yourself first before you, you cannot help anybody until you are full of the love of God. You, are, you and I are totally 
We lack any power to help other people. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do zero. So what we do is we live in total dependency on him. Not that we first loved him, but he first loved us. So we have to receive what is first, his love for us. One of the secrets to the Christian life, and I've said this a thousand times maybe, but it's so cool, you've got to live in, the, in, this, in this presence of God loving you. When the first thing when you wake up in the morning, don't think about what I can do for God. Don't think about what I should be doing for God. Don't think about praying to God. Don't think about worshiping God. Don't think about I need to praise God. Don't think about any of that. Just first thought should be receiving the love of God for you. It's not selfish. It's, it's a spiritual truth. It shows your humility. It shows your humility. If we think we can do all this stuff for God and we're not receiving from him, that's what Mary found. Martha was busy, busy, busy. Martha, 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 busy, busy. But Mary was just sitting at his feet receiving from him. And Jesus said, this is what I'm looking for. Martha, you're b- very b- busy and worried about many things. But this is what I'm looking for. Because in that receiving of his life, much, much fruit is born. Because the love we receive is the love we'll give. The mercy we receive is the mercy we'll give. We'll see him, and we'll see him seeing us righteous and forgiven, forgiven and cleansed, and we'll start seeing other people like that. We can see everybody in the world like that. He told Peter, Peter, don't call another man ever again unholy. And then that's when God sent him to the Gentiles. And he goes, wow, God has shown me I shouldn't call no man unholy. God has done a work that has cleansed the earth. Then you'd only receive what he has done. And I'm here to tell you what he's done. For whosoever believes shall receive the forgiveness of all sins in his name. What a, what, what a way to live. Where everybody you see, everybody you meet, you see them as cleansed by God's work. They need only believe, need only see and receive. It's just awesome. Well, this is not exactly what... Let's look at a little bit of this. I just want to look at Hebrews chapter 5. Let's start with um, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. Okay, the writer to the Hebrews is saying here, look at verse 10, talking about the Son of God. He says, be, let me go back to verse 8. I want to answer a question that, that sometimes comes up in teaching and the way people teach this verse. Let's go to verse 7. God, let's go to verse 1. It's awesome. Yeah, let's go to Genesis. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. This is so cool. For every high priest taken from among men. Now, he's, he's talking about this new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek that's coming. Or that's here now. And that was coming. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice a priest is appointed by God on behalf of men. A priest stands with men behind him, so to speak, looking to God, offering sacrifices to God on behalf of men. 
A prophet stands with God behind him with, with words to men coming from God. That's the difference. A priest represents men before God. A prophet represents God before men. That's what Jesus, he was both a priest and a prophet and a king, king, priest, and prophet. Okay. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. So in the natural, under the old covenant, the, the high priest was a man also. And he was beset with weakness. So he also could deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Verse 3. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And we notice in another passage where Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself, for he was without sin, for he was the priest and the sacrifice for us. And the fact that he took on flesh and blood, the scripture says he understands the weakness of man, just like that high priest did, even though he was without sin. And he can understand our need of being encouraged, for he was tempted in every way that we're tempted, yet without sin. So he understands us, which is awesome. Like we've read that lyric in that that song, Oh Holy Night, last Sunday, which I love, that he is no stranger to our weakness. He was born to be our friend. Oh Holy Night. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Verse 4. And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he, was, but he who said to him, see, the Father appointed him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Now, what that verse means, he's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. He's talking about the moment when he would offer himself up as the sacrifice. And the scripture says that he, he offered himself up with crying and tears. The, the agony of that moment, we can't begin to fathom. He sweat uh, drops as blood, the scripture says, which actually is a, is a real physical condition. You can be so under stress sometimes that the capillaries break in your skin and your, its blood actually mingles with your sweat. So it's actually sweating blood because of such stress, such intensity that, the, that you're, uh, it's, like, it's like having a stroke almost, little capillaries breaking. And that's what Jesus was going through in the garden because he knew that he was going to take on the sin of the world for all time, for all people the incredible, never before ever separated from his father, ever. What he was fearful more of any, most uh, of all was the, the sense of separation from his father. And yet he said, not my will, but your will be done, father. He became separated for us that we may never feel separated. You see why God put such value in his new covenant and why he doesn't want you to feel condemned for one second? His son suffered this for us. He suffered separation from the Father because he took upon himself the sin of the world so that every sin you commit has already been judged. It's already been judged through the Son. The Son suffered greatly for this, for us. And he was glad to do it. In fact, the Scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He saw you. You were his joy. He saw you. He endured it because of you and me. And so that's why it's just really so wrong for us to wallow in guilt. I don't care how bad you think you've sinned as a believer. I don't care how bad you think you've blown it. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound because it's the blood of the Son of God we're talking about here. It's the work of God himself. 
who, who left no stone unturned and no sin not atoned for. Whether small or big, it's been done. He has judged us. We have died. We were crucified. Oh, that's what I forgot to say. That's the testimony. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony is the testimony of the Lord is now their testimony. The testimony of the Lord is that he, was, he came, became a man and died and was raised again for the sins of the world. Now their, his testimony becomes their testimony for I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So they overcame, they overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb, the work of Christ, which is objective outside of them, the blood of the lamb outside of them, a work that done outside of them, and the word of their testimony, which is subjective, they now entered into that work. Their testimony is the Lord's testimony. The Lord's testimony is their testimony. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with Christ. I was raised with Christ. I ascended with Christ. I am as Christ in the world now. As he is, so am I in the world now. See, they overcame the beast by the word of their testimony. What was objective became subjective. What was, what was a message became experiential, and they... Love not their lives even unto the death as they were tortured and as they were put to death because of their life in Christ. Isn't that awesome? It's as simple as that and yet as profound as that. Okay, then he goes. Okay, then verse, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. This verse has been so mistaught in the church. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He's not saying here, the writer's not saying here, that Jesus learned to obey through suffering. The son never disobeyed. The suffering that's referring to here is the same suffering in verse 7. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. It's at, at the end of his life. It's where he's about to take that step, that one act of obedience, which Paul says in Romans, one act of obedience brought us all righteousness. The one act of obedience referred to there is the death, giving his life the death, the cross. So verse 8 is, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. What the, the Greek is actually saying there, and you can, you can see it clearly if you just add one little word, uh, like an italics to understand it better what the Greek is saying. Put the word about before the word obedience. Write the word about before the word obedience. This is what it's saying. Although he was a son, he learned about obedience from the things which he suffered. In other words, although he was a son and he never disobeyed, yet he never experienced obedience in a fallen world. He had never experienced obedience to God in a fallen world. In heaven, he was the son, obedient. But what he learned helps us now. He learned what it's like to obey God in a fallen world. You get crucified. You get nailed to a tree. You get rejected. He learned this experientially as a man. He never had felt this before. He had never been rejected. You see? You see what that's saying? It's an awesome statement. He's not saying, no, see, God's going to bring suffering in your life to teach you to obey him. That's how preachers preach that verse. God's going to bring suffering in your life to teach you to obey him. No, the son never disobeyed. What did, he, did he learn to obey from his sufferings? Well, there were no sufferings really until the very end, so he didn't get it right till the very end. You see, it doesn't make sense. Because the suffering here in verse 8 is a reference to, is a reference to, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a reference to um, verse 7 and 8. It's talking about he's, all, he's with tears crying out to God who can save him from this cup. 
So he didn't just finally learn to obey through the sufferings at the very end of his life. No, what the writer is saying here is that he who never disobeyed, who was the son, though he were a son, yet God allowed him to experience suffering in this fallen world because of his obedience to the Father. Why? So that he could help us. So he could comfort us as a high priest who knows, I know, I know, I know, I felt such hostility from sinners myself. Don't be afraid. He who's felt such hostility from sinners tells us now, be strong, strengthen the hands that are weak. I'm with you. I know. I know what it's like to obey in a fallen world. I know what it's like to follow the Father in a fallen world. I understand. I know. I felt it. I experienced it. For the first time in the son's life, he experienced it as a man for us. Isn't that awesome? That's what that verse is saying. It's not talking about God trying to bring you suffering so you'll be obedient. That's ridiculous. Okay, verse 9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being made perfect there, it means he not only was the perfect sacrifice because he was righteous with no sin, but he was the perfect righteous son who experienced suffering in a fallen world. Now he's perfect. Now he can, he experienced, he's experienced it all. He can talk to men about this. He can help men. He's, he's perfect. Awesome. Okay. Verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest, According, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning him, this is, now this is what I was going to try to get into today, but I guess we don't have enough time. But verse 11 says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, the writer here is saying there is so much to say about this Melchizedek priesthood. It's so rich. It's so powerful. But he's talking to the, his hearers here, his Jewish hearers. He says, but you become dull of hearing. And I can't really tell you what I want to tell you because for though by this time, verse 12, you ought to be teachers, you have, no, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God or the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. What does he mean? Oh, the word of righteousness is a person who is still struggling with their sin, thinking they're unrighteous. Still struggling with this word of righteousness, which is the gospel, that we receive the gift of righteousness by God, which we just, we just talked about. For he who has received this abundant grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. The, the, it, it's actually... The legalist actually prides himself in being, you know, strong in the word and, and very mature. And yet the legalist who struggles about his own righteousness because of his sin, the writer here says, is an infant. An infant. And cannot go into the deeper things of Christ. For he needs to be taught the elementary principles again because he still struggles with his own sin and thinks God is counting his sins against him. And I tell you what's kept people in that, that vicious cycle is the, the false teaching from 1 John 1, 9, the wrong teaching from 1 John 1, 9 that has told the church that you need to confess your sins and get right with God every time you sin. You need to get cleansed again and again and again and again. It's demonic the way we have misinterpreted 1 John 1, 9, one single verse in all the Bible. That that, if, if that was true, think about it, saints. If that was true, that you had to name your sins on a daily basis to stay cleansed and stay forgiven and put those sins under the blood, so to speak, on a daily basis or hourly basis or whatever, if that were true, it would be in the Scripture at least a hundred times. At least. 
I mean, that's pretty important if that's the truth. I mean, fellowship with God? Staying cleansed? Staying righteous before God? I mean, that's pretty important. It'd be in there at least 100 times, more like, like 200, 300 times. I mean, it's huge. But we have one verse. We have one verse, one man, one John, one, one apostle. What did Peter say? He didn't mention it. Peter said, no, if, you have, if you're not bearing fruit in your life, you have forgotten that you were once purged from all your sin. He says just the opposite. He says you're bl- you become blind, nearsighted. You, you've, you've forgotten the truth of a once forgiveness for all sin for all time. What did Paul say? Paul never mentioned it. Not once. Paul? Paul? With all of his epistles? Not once. Did Paul ever, and he had plenty of opportunities to tell the Corinthian church they need to confess their sins and get right with God. Not once. He just, he just t- reminded them of who they were. Like, why are you acting like this? Don't you know who you are? Put off the deeds of the flesh. Put on the deeds of the new man. What are you doing? But crying out loud. You know? One verse, one verse, one verse. First John 1, 9. And we all, like little sheep, just follow the preachers and the teachers and the theologians that say, this is the, the paramount verse concerning our relationship with God, that we need to confess our sins. Well, if it's so paramount, why isn't it anywhere else? Could it be that that First John 1, 9 is simply saying to an unbeliever who says, I have no sin, I have not sinned. Could it be possibly the, the writer is simply saying that that person who has not the word in them, not the truth in them, who is calling God a liar because God says he is a sinner, that person needs to confess his sin. For God is faithful and just to forgive their sin and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. He's simply saying those who say they don't need a Savior need to confess their sins, which we all did. But you don't keep laying that foundation over and over again to stay right with God. That's what this writer is actually saying later in here. He goes, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. See? But we have been taught that, and so we are, we are not strong in the word of righteousness, and we have become infants. We have become anemic. Faith has not been developed because we have been fed a steady diet of wood, hay, and stubble, and law, and what things to do to make God happy, as opposed to what God did. We need a steady diet of what God did and who he is. That's what feeds the spirit. That's what builds your faith. That's what releases the life within. The spirit of life is released by believing. He who believes on me, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Not he who does good deeds. Not not he who keeps my commandments. Not he, that doesn't release the life. The life will cause us to keep commandments or, or do things for God. But it's not that that makes the life flow. The life flows from believing what he did and who he is, and who we are in him. This is the truth that sets us free. This is what triggers the flow of life. This is what, you can, we can quench the spirit of life, the scripture says. You can quench the spirit of life. You can frustrate the grace of God, Galatians says. You can frustrate the grace of God by wrong thinking. And, and so we have this word of righteousness that is not understood in, in our minds like it should be because of, of some bad teaching out in the church. But in this Fellowship, I'm so thankful that so many people really get this and know this. We've gone beyond that, you know, that does God love me when I sin? You know? And a person who says, I'm not sure if God still loves me because I just, I just blew it. They're an infant, spiritual infant. And they need to have that foundation of what God did, the Melchizedek priesthood, so that when they sin, they can go boldly to a throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need, not running away from God, but running toward him, knowing that he is, has become their righteousness and that cannot be improved upon, that we are one with him, he and us, we and him, 
that it's done. As the Son was in the Father and the Father in the Son, so now He is in us and we are in Him. One. Awesome, awesome reality. Verse 13 again. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for, is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Put the word really good, really before good and really before evil, and you'll see the real meaning of that in the Greek. Put the word really good and really evil, because the mature know what is really good and what is really evil. See, when you understand the word of righteousness, then you understand what is really evil. And what really evil is doing good deeds to please God or doing good, not doing, I'll say it this way, doing good deeds to earn your righteousness before God is really evil. You see that? See, the mature know what is really good and what is really evil. By the exercise of their senses because of the revelation of the word of righteousness, then they know, they know that doing good deeds in order to be righteous before God is very evil. What? How could be doing good to be righteous before God is evil? It is extremely evil. It is a rejection of the blood of the Son of God. It is self-righteousness to the max. It is a, it is a smoke in God's nostrils that you would try to do good deeds to be righteous before God. So those who are mature know what, what is really good and what is really evil. You see? You really begin to understand the, the issues and so forth. And I'll tell you something else. All these believers and Christians that are so excited about the, another temple being built in Israel, and they think, oh, they found the red heifer, the ashes of the red heifer, and they, the temple's going to be rebuilt, and they're going to have the priests, and they're going to start offering sacrifices again. Isn't this exciting? No, it's not. It's an abomination to God. It's an abomination to God. Jesus said, not one stone shall be left upon another. All shall be cast down for a, a, the true temple has come and I will raise this true temple up in three days. He is the true temple and God is not going back to a temple made with hands nor is he going back to animal sacrifices. It's an abomination to God and believers are all excited about another temple being built is ridiculous because we don't understand the word of righteousness. We're infants excited about some Jewish temple and animal sacrifices and ashes of the red heifer. We are infants, not understanding the, red, the, um, the word of righteousness. We would say, if we understood what God had done, we would say, what? That would be the most, the most horrible thing the Jewish people could ever do. It'd be a slap in the face of the Son of God. Most horrible thing the Jewish people could ever, 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 ever do. He's not going back to a temple made with hands. That's why Stephen got stoned. Stephen got stoned. The first martyr of the Christian church, of the church, the first martyr of Stephen got stoned. You can read it in Acts where he actually said, God does not live in a temple made with hands. God has brought a new reality, a new temple. He's raised the Christ in three days. We are his body, living stones of a new temple. Dwelling place of God by the spirit. It's awesome. We have become the habitation of God by the Spirit, living stones. Part of that whole temple thing that people are excited about is they don't see what they have in Christ, and they're a bunch of Jewish wannabes. They, want, they think they can get closer to God if I can get back to how the Jewish people did stuff with the Passover, and, oh, I want to I be a Jew. I want to I be like the Jew. I want to, no. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're a new creation. It's, a whole, it's, it's better than Gentile, better than Jew. It's a whole new creation. It's not of this world. 
That doesn't mean you, don't, you can't still love Israel. I love Israel. I love the Jewish people. That doesn't change any of that. And Israel's still in prophecy about the last days. There are going to be some things happening. I believe all that too. There's going to be some things still that are not yet fulfilled that God is going to reach for his people that rejected him in the latter days. That's all going to happen. But you don't try to go back, as Paul says, to holy days and feast days and all these things. Paul says, have I preached to you in vain? Are you going back to this stuff? Are you, are you trying to, to, are you excited about a temple being built? It's an abomination. Because we are so focused on the seen, we don't see the unseen. When you're lost in the unseen, you see how ridiculous that is. Just as ridiculous as for a church to say, this is the holy place of God. This is the te- it's just, just ridiculous for, for churches to say, oh, thank you, God, that we're, we're in your holy place here. You know, this is the holy place of God, and, and we're here. No, you are the holy place of God, and you take it to Publix. Yes. And you take it to the movie theater. The holy place of God is let loose. It's out there in the world. The temple is out there in the world. It's not a building with martyr and brick and concrete and a mortgage. No. He's better than that. Uh, sorry about the soapbox. Lord, thank you so much for helping us see the, the unseen reality. Help us see more things in this awesome letter to the Hebrews. Help us be mature. Help us see the word of righteousness and rest in this gift of righteousness that we might grow and be mature and know what really is good and what is really evil, which doesn't really equal the same thing that a legalist might say is really good and really evil. Thank you, Lord. You're awesome. You're awesome. In Jesus' name, amen.